Greetings, and welcome to Office Hours Air. My name is Noah Sviven. I'm your host. I'm a senior here at Stanford. I study history. And today on the program, I am joined by Roxanne Nylon, Karen Bartholomew, and Larry Horton. Roxanne Nylon is the author of a new biography on Wallace Sterling, who served as Stanford's university president from 1949 until 1968, a 19-year period during which Stanford transformed itself from a respected regional university to a world-renowned center for research. By the end of his presidency, the university's operating budget was nearly nine times higher than what it was when he began as president. And in addition to Dr. Roxanne Nylon, as I said a moment ago, we are also joined by Karen Bartholomew, the editor of the book, and Larry Horton, the president of the Stanford Historical Society. Now, the best way to understand the arguments and narratives of the book is obviously to read it, and no conversation about a book can stand in for the experience of reading it. The purpose of this conversation, then, is to highlight some of the content of the book, to discuss the history of the writing of the book, and to hear the perspectives of our wonderful guests. So I'd like to ask each of you to introduce yourself so our listeners can recognize your voices. And when you introduce yourself, could you share with us when you first came to Stanford? I'm the youngest one here, so I'll uh, give it a start. Well, I came to Stanford in uh, 1976, a few years after graduating from um, that great rival, Stanford rival um, across the bay. Um, so I have a bachelor's degree from Cal. Um, but I've been working on Stanford history ever since, 70, coming in 76. I was university archivist. Uh, I helped put together the Stanford Oral History Project and some other projects that are still going um, just fine, like the Silicon Valley Project. Um, but as university archivist, uh, I got to meet Karen, and our interest in um, Stanford history grew as recognizing we both like to write about it. Um, so I went back to uh, get my graduate degree from Stanford uh, in 1990 and have been working with the Stanford Historical Society ever since. I'm Karen Bartholomew. Uh, I'm class of 1971, and I worked at the Stanford News Service, News and Publication Service originally, um, for 25 years. And so I really... Uh, got to know a lot about the university, and I, I took on kind of the responsibility of being the office expert on Stanford history because the older guys who knew a lot were retiring um, slowly but surely. So, um, yeah, then Rocky and I met, and, and we've worked on many, many projects together. I did writing and editing for the news service. Uh, so that's about it. Larry? Uh, well, um, when I arrived at Stanford, it was September 1960. I crossed over. I walked, got, took the train here, and then I walked over uh, Palm Drive, and never did I dream that, uh, that, from, that I would never leave except for three years. I spent two years in the Army and one year working in Washington for the secretary of HEW. And other than that, I've been at Stanford as a student. I was, an, I was a student in political science and in history. And then I, got, I started working at Stanford. I was associate, assistant dean of students and associate dean of students. And I handled the housing system at Stanford, residential education. Then I went to, after coming back from Washington, I uh, moved over to the 
vice president for public affairs office and worked under three presidents in charge of government relations, uh, relations with Stanford's relations with the federal, state, and local governments. And I've always enjoyed history, and now I'm working with the Historical Society as a volunteer. I think it's fair to say that among the three of you, we have over a century of experience at Stanford. Oh, yeah. Plus. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty wonderful. So I want to start with a a simple question, which is, why Wallace Sterling? Interestingly, Sterling is one of the most uh, legendary of key Stanford figures. Um, And I mean that legendary. Um, So we have situation where there's very little written about him and yet he's given credit for so much and people don't necessarily understand why today he's credited with so much so it seemed like an opportune moment um to put our our interest and our background knowing a number of people from that that era even though we are of a later era um it was a it was a good project for us to carry out and we took up a project that um a fourth person who's not here to introduce himself had um, had instigated, and that's Cassius Kirk, who is the uh, the other um, person named as the author, co-author, and the book's dedicated to Cash because he's the one who said, "Hey, nobody really knows what went on during the Sterling administration." So, Cash Kirk started it, but uh, couldn't finish it. He was. Um, quite a bit older than us, and uh, he was ill. And um, he's now been gone nine years, <laughs> but we promised him that we would finish the book. And um, and so we did. But <laughs> it turned out to be much thicker than we expected, and uh, it's got a lot of pictures in it. So it's... Um, it's quite a different book now than yeah. it was when he first proposed the project. Yeah, he saw it as being a very uh, short and sweet book, but with no scholarly um, references or bibliography, none of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's very clear, right, when you look at the back of this book, the the, the amount of archival work that went into it. Yes. And of of course, Roxanne, you were the the second university archivist. I was. And um, experience with the new service with you, Karen, is obviously invaluable. so, I mean, what was it like to reflect on um, the institution that, that you've dedicated your professional life to through the process of working on this book? Wow, that's a heavy one. Um, I think initially it was, it was exciting for two reasons. One, because we knew so much about the archival materials, the people, the real people, the oral histories, it was it was fun to be able to be to, to delve into that, um, but secondly, it was also this era that we did not participate ourselves in this era. We came. Karen and I were students at the very very end of this era. We were part of that generation that rebelled against the Sterling administration. I did it at Cal against a different administration, but. We were we were we looked at things a little bit differently than say an alum of the the, the early fifties. I was not a rebel. Yeah, Go well, ahead. I shouldn't say yeah. we rebelled. We reflected. We we were there. We were on the ground when these things were happening. Um, so it, it it kind of gave us an opportunity to look at it from a personal perspective a bit, 
but a reflective perspective. I think Rocky and I, I think that Rocky and Karen are being a bit modest. Uh, this is really extraordinary work for nine years. Uh, they did this, by the way, completely a volunteer. Uh, they received nothing, uh, no compensation for doing it. They did it out of a love of history and an obligation to their friend and because of the love of Stanford history. It's an extraordinary book because it covers, uh, it's, it's over, it's over uh, 600 and some odd pages and it has almost 500 photographs and it details in exquisite detail with 60 pages of endnotes uh, the really important features, things that happened during that time that were of enormous importance to Stanford's development. Now, th- throughout the book, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, there, there are sections upon sections about, about other people, right, who are not Wallace Sterling, students and faculty, uh, other administrators. Uh, Roxanne, I wanted to ask about this commitment to highlighting other actors besides him and, and what the significance of that is. Well, I think that's um, just my approach to history. It's not a great man kind of thing. Um, this, whether it's a, doing an institution's history is difficult in itself. And um, the easy way out is to pin it on the leader. Uh, but I think the, 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 the way the whole field of history has changed over the last uh, 30, 40 years is to look at the, all of the actors and to look at all of the pieces. And it, that's what makes Stanford history interesting. It's, it's not looking at just certain very successful decisions of very successful leaders. It's looking at all the people who had something to do with it. Some of the, some of the things they wanted to do didn't work out. That's just as interesting. Um, And so because, I think that, and, and in part because we knew who some of these people were, we knew where they had talked to each other about these things. They had told us what kinds of uh, issues were important to them. Um, it provided a great opportunity to, to, to paint a much more colorful picture. Can, can we talk about what the university was like when Wallace Sterling came in 1949? And then after that, we can talk about what it was like in, in 68, just in, in broad terms. Well, I, I, don't, I wasn't here before Wallace Sterling. I did get my degree from Wallace Sterling I, at Frost Amphitheater. He handed me my diploma. But uh, there's no question that the, the university has, t- has changed enormously since then. Someone walking through Stanford today who hadn't been here since Sterling left would find a very different place with science and engineering quad and so many other things. Basically, I think from the time that I arrived, though, that the basic Stanford spirit of people being having a drive to try to get ahead to do something, to explore new things, that was always there. Uh, it's just that with Sterling and with the changes that Fred Terman, his provost, brought in increasing the quality of the faculty and having uh, raising money to be able to afford new faculty and new facilities – we'd be able to expand our efforts enormously. And of course, remember, it also coincided with the end of World War II and the, fe- the federal government's investment in research. They realized in, after the war how important it was for America to be strong in science. And that's where they have massive amounts 
of federal funding that had never existed, and Stanford was there to be able to take advantage of that, probably as well as anybody in the country. I think one of the fun things about the book, um, and this is where we, we really enjoyed using photography. Um, you look at the photographs of Stanford in the late 40s and the early 50s. Any student of today looking at those photographs will go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, physically a very different place. It was still the farm. Um, there was a lot of open land. You walked long distances to get to things without necessarily having to walk through buildings that are 12 stories high. Um, you could find parking. <laughs> um, it was it, it, where students lived, where faculty lived. These, these things were all, it was, it was a community. It was a real community. I think today it's such an urban campus. Um, even when I first came, uh, it, it didn't have the feeling of being an urban campus very much a suburban campus, but it was still the farm in the 70s a bit. Yeah. I mean, this is something that was really moving for me looking at the book is, is are, are, are the photographs. And I've, I think as in terms of how I relate to campus, so much of it is, is, is a visual relationship. I mean, campus has such a distinctive look. Yeah. And getting to see what it looked like, you know, well, I mean, main quad or the area around Tresseter or, or Floma, which I'm now living in for the fourth year. I mean, to see what it looked like 60, 70 years ago, I mean, it's pretty special. Can, and, you, oh. can you imagine sheep in your in uh, <laughs> the front of your dorm? Um, to make be, sure Behind the, um, behind the library, Gina. the main library. <laughs> or driving person. around the quad, you could actually drive a car yeah. uh, uh, around yeah. what's the quad today. Yeah. Wow. And I, under, I understand that, that, Karen, you were instrumental in, in, in curating the photographs. Can you talk about why you thought it was important and how you went about that? I just thought that this was a great opportunity to, um, to do a blended book that would both be scholarly in terms of the text, but then could have more appeal by having all these very interesting photos. And I was very, very familiar with the collection at the news service. And we had hired uh, two photographers in 1960 and 61. So the early part of um, Wally's uh, tenure was not actually covered by us, but there, there were a lot of pictures from other sources that that were obtained by the earliest people who worked at uh, at the news service in the well the, the earliest <laughs> that's a complicated story but anyway um, they we had these wonderful subject files we had um, just thousands and thousands of pictures to look through and and then the archives finished digitizing its collection and that became extremely important so we just wanted to make the book come to life I'd, I'd done work on uh, an earlier book called the Stanford album in which we used the story of Stanford to sort of parallel how photography how photography had changed over the history of the Stanford community. And um, we purposefully stopped at the end of Dr. Tresseter's presidency, the beginning of Sterling, around that time, um, because you go from black and white to color. And 
we used a lot of alumni, um, student photography, that sort of thing. All of that was in the archives. So with Sterling, you get a whole new approach to photography, too, of photography of the campus. So what Karen was able to bring into it were things that the university had uh, photographed on purpose um, or things like for fundraising campaigns. You get a much more widespread and in-depth photography that we didn't have for the earlier period. So it was a great idea. <laughs> Dragged my feet a little bit initially, but... I beat her up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, let's talk about some of the, 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 the changes that happened between 1949 and 1968. I mean, Larry, you already touched on the fact that this is the post-World War II period, but right, we have the relocation of the medical school from San Francisco to campus, which is totally transformative. I mean, there's one member of the faculty who I won't name who remarked to me that Stanford is a is a medical school with with you know yeah. <laughs> other things attached to it. So I mean, the medical school is an essential part of what it is, this this place is. Um, I mean, why, why don't we begin there? I mean, what 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 was that? How, how did that come about? Well, Sterling wasn't the first one to think of the idea of moving it down. Um, it had been toyed with. Um, there were several reasons that it came up at this time. The reason it's in the front of the book was that it was very transformative to the way Stanford looked at itself and the way he worked with all the moving parts. It was a great example to watch him get trustees involved in the way they did to mobilize um, a medical school faculty, many of whom did not want to move to campus. Um, it, it was a time when the facilities in San Francisco were falling apart and there were younger faculty who who were driving this forward like Henry Kaplan they knew they wouldn't be able to attract really top faculty if they didn't do something about the facilities so it was a time to sort of fisher cut bait on the medical school in San Francisco I think that's kind of an eye-opener to many people today is that Stanford's medical school was actually up in the city um, so it was a come to Jesus moment for Stanford. And what, what, what were some of the other you know, major developments of the period? Well, I think the 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 two next um, that are all interrelated with this is land development and um, fundraising, because these were all part of Sterling's reconceptualization, I guess you'd say, of what Stanford could be. Um, he was not the first president to think Stanford could be great, but he was one of the first to, or maybe you say he was the one who was instrumental in thinking, we know where we want to be. Let's think about how we can get it done. He was very pragmatic. He was, um, he was a master of working with people. He is, his experience as a as a collegiate athlete and as a uh, as a coach um, really came in on all of these different things. So, I would say the medical school kind of woke them up about what they could do um, and what they couldn't yet do with fundraising. And at the very same time, he was beginning to uh, think about different ways he could experiment, or Stanford could experiment with land development. People today think of the Stanford Research Park, Stanford Shopping Center, um, but 
their first experiment was actually in residential housing on the other side of um, San, Fr- San Francisco Creek um, and blossomed into a, uh, a master plan that conceptualized a whole town of 40,000 people up in the foothills. Um, so land development is a, great, is a great story of what could have happened, what did happen, and thank God what did not happen. <laughs> um, because there was a point where they realized they were not going to get a good uh, return on residential housing, and they just stopped. And there were reasons for that, too, having to do with the rise of concert, the environmental movement um, and just the practicalities of having a whole town of people not affiliated with Stanford. Um, if you have 40,000 people of which, let's say, 20,000 of them can vote, well, maybe they don't want history students at Stanford anymore. Mm. Um, that it's a, whole, it's a whole power dynamic that they didn't really think about until they started getting into it. So... There's that's a couple to start out with, and and obviously the land development had a big impact on campus, on just on the camp, the inner campus, because um, thinking about what facilities are needed and how, how with the role that plays, um, it's it's all part of a piece. Yes, and I think we're clearly one of the, of Sterling's great decisions was the selection of Fred Terman as the provost. And Fred Terman, in fact, some people have written books about Fred Terman. Rocky was very heavily involved in one of them, but there have been several in which they talked. He, he may have been the most important provost uh, in the 20th century at any uh, American university. He took, he took on the task of trying to upgrade Stanford's faculty and add uh, bright new stars, people who would be very competitive in the research world and who would be able to uh, to, to, to really uh, bring new, new, new fields of study here to Stanford. And that come, combined with dedicating some land to the industrial part where people like David Packard and Bill Hewlett, uh, who knew Fred Terman quite well, were students, uh, started Hewlett-Packard there. So that whole development with uh, Fred Terman and his trying to create steeples of excellence at Stanford was uh, a major, major uh, uh, factor in this period. And can you say more? I mean, what were these steeples of excellence? What, what, what was meant by that phrase? Well, he certainly he meant that, that, that you would have, you, you couldn't put all of your sources, you couldn't spread them out. So you would try to take and build up certain departments in certain areas first and then go out and they'll do elsewhere. Now, before it was all over, he also did make a tremendous uh, improvements, or not improvements, but p- devoted resources to bring in great historians, for example, uh, or classicists. But um, uh, basically, steeples of excellence was to make sure that we had some places that just were just truly excelled, and everyone knew that. So um, it's my understanding that Stanford has an abnormally vast land holding. Um, yes. th- for that, for a university, it's got a, a, a lot of land. Eight thousand one hundred and eighty acres in six political jurisdictions. Wow! And of course, you you have experience working with that <laughs> during your time as an administrator. I handled land use, yes. <laughs> but um, I mean, so I'm one one theme that we've already touched on and which is explored in the book is is faculty recruitment and this extraordinary effort that was put into bringing people right from from elsewhere. 
Um, one character is uh, someone I've been you know, researching for my own project, David Hamburg, who was chair of the psychiatry department. And when he was being recruited, he had these conversations with Sterling in which he talked about wanting to have a chimp research facility. Mm-hmm. And, and Sterling, um, you know, he, he, Hamburg remarked later in oral histories that, he, that, that Sterling was open to the idea in part because there was so much land to appropriate for, for something like that. One of the interesting stories about land development is the gradual um, realization that that land out there wasn't just a money-making thing. It was an extraordinary opportunity to develop research facilities. And when you're recruiting faculty, as you say, that's very important. Um, It was a place where they... Initially, in, in, in when they were first thinking about the master plan, the allotment of what was called campus land down here to non-academic land was like eight to one. What they began to realize over time, and um, especially Sterling was very big on faculty involvement in advising he loved faculty advisory committees. It was a way to give the faculty voice. Not necessarily decision-making, but, but certainly voice. One of those key faculty uh, advisory groups was headed by Fred Terman, and it was part of this whole review of land use and land allotment. And over time, especially as Terman really found his voice, there's a whole new category called academic land. Um, lands that will be available to be assigned to research. So whether it's the chimp facilities or the dish or um, uh, Jasper Ridge, which expands over time, um, Slack, um, just there, there's it, the, the distribution almost gets to where it is today where acad- almost as much as possible should be academic land. Um, so it's 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 a great one of a great example of something they didn't necessarily foresee in the beginning, but it's all part of that mix. How do you get the faculty? You know, it's a, even take take something like the Stanford Shopping Center, which people think is a, a a fixed place. Well, actually, when I was handling land use and the political aspects of land use and met with the board of supervisors, I said, no, the shopping center is interim use. I could imagine sometime in the future that maybe that would be a biological preserve. Who knows? But the point is, all of Stanford lands are supposed to be used in support of the university. Now, some will go to housing. That's good use. Some goes to various other purposes. We now have income production at the shopping center. But uh, all the lands are to be used to the furtherance of education at Stanford. Let's talk a little bit about president-provost relations. I mean, the, the provost and, and president are are the central figures in the university. I, I understand that the, the, the responsibility sharing may vary from provost and president to provost and president. But, I mean, so w- 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 what was Sterling's presidency like and, and the provosts with whom he worked? Well, you know, Terman was not his first provost. His first provost was Douglas Whitaker. Uh, a biologist, very, very well-known uh, biologist and a very, very popular professor. Um, and Wally, in the beginning, we call him Wally because we are all, you know, we know him so well, we're on first name basis. 
um, he he tried to do everything himself. He did not like big administrations. He read every line in the budget. He did everything on his own. And in the first few years, it uh, it was fine. The university was was still fairly small. But as things are beginning to grow in the 50s, um, he clearly needs someone. And he chose Whitaker because Whitaker was a leader in humanities and sciences. Um, and I think <clears throat> Wally, Wally thought they would have a more symbiotic relationship than it turned out to be. Uh, Whitaker struggled with some, some issues having to do with, um, you know, really doing a deep dive into what was needed uh, academically. Um, and he, in the end, chose to go elsewhere. He went to one of the big foundations. And while he looked around and said, who, who can I work with? Who can be my assistant coach, if you have it? Who, who is somebody who has talent in the things that I don't necessarily have talent in? And the wonderful thing about Fred Terman and Wallace Sterling was that extraordinary relationship. They trusted each other. They, um, they each had a talent the other one acknowledged they did not have. Um, and I, I knew Fred Terman, and he, um, he was not, you know, Wally Sterling would walk into a room, he would light up a room. He had a way of, of, of gradually getting people to do what he needed them to do and get everybody moving in the forward direction. Uh, Fred was very analytical. Um, he sometimes ran over people. Um, and he knew that if he really wanted to get done what he wanted to get done, he needed Wally there with his door open to all the people who were going to complain and, and needed an explanation. That's what Sterling could do. Mm-hmm. And Sterling could get him the money. Fred Terman was not a fundraiser. And so they, were, they, they did have, and they acknowledged to everybody around that, that this this was an extraordinary relationship. You know, and I that think... set a very high bar hmm. from then on. So I would think, wouldn't you, Larry? Uh, well, yes. I was going to say that the president-provost for arrangements at Stanford is unusual, and I think it's unlike most other president-provosts uh, in America. The provost is always the chief academic officer. But at Stanford, the, ch- the provost is today and has been for a number of years, the chief budget officer. So that people who want money don't go to the president, they go to the provost. Uh, I recall many times in recent years that it was more difficult to get an appointment to see the provost than to see the president. Mm. Uh, yeah. But in fact, the president and the provost work as a team together. Uh, and any time that they don't work as a team together, I think there would be difficulties. But but the, 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 because the, the provost handles the budget and the president has the overall uh, view of things, it, it's, it's really a very important dual relationship. And then does that mean that the president has primary responsibility for the university's relationship to the, the wider world? Oh, without a doubt. The, pre- the, the president does have the most of the concern with external audiences, like not, not, just, not merely alumni and former students, but with the the. the, the the, the city councils in Palo Alto and Menlo Park, the, the Congress of the United States, and that sort of thing. Hmm. Well, and I think another key relationship is with the trustees. Um, Ster- Sterling had the direct relationship with the trustees. 
um, the provost, was included on invitation. Um, but it was, uh, and I think that's the same today. Um, it was, uh, that relationship with the trustees was the, how do we really get things done? Because there are certain things that the president, the university cannot do without the trustees being on board. So what was Sterling's relationship like with the trustees? And who were some of the main trustees at the time? Well, um, <laughs> that's a big subject. That's so a big let's subject. Let's let yes. Rocky take a deep breath. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess the place to start is with um, some of the key people who became trustee presidents. Um a very important position at the, that time. And each one had a very distinct personality and background. And he um, he had a close relationship with all of them up until probably I'd say the about a period of time for a couple of years around 1960. Um, and there are reasons for that I won't go into right now, but they're, they're very interesting people in and of themselves. The first uh, president he dealt with, Paul Edwards, was a journalist who had um, um, a, a, a very interesting way of going about getting things done. He was a very modest man, um, and everybody would kind of, you know, look at all these other people and then realize that they had just gotten a whole th- bunch of things accomplished because... Paul got all the ducks in a row. And as an individual, he had faced down Ku Klux Klan threats and the whole range of things as a, as a young um, journalist and, and newspaper editor uh, that were really like, whoa, that was, that's exciting. So by the t- And he was, he was a, a devoted alumnus, um, volunteer, uh, was on the board at the end of his life. So he and he and Wally shared this kind of journalist's interest in looking at the world because Wally had a background in in um, broadcast journalism. Um, the next the next man, uh, Lloyd Dinkelspiel, became he and 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 uh, Sterling became very close personal friends. And Lloyd Dinkelspiel was um, uh, a Stanford alum. Um, got his law degree from Harvard, but came back to San Francisco. He was a very uh, prominent in the Jewish uh, philanthropic um, world. Um, and yeah, they became best buds. And Dinkelspiel was another guy who was very, very personable, very adept at fundraising. And so you see Stanford, he, he's president at that time from the mid fifties where they're really starting to put the hammer down on, on trying to get funds into the university. You know, it's important. A lot of people don't realize that the trustees own Stanford. Yeah. They are the body that owns Stanford. Yeah. So they do control everything. Now, the way historically it's worked out, of course, is they defer to the president, the committees, the faculty, but they do uh, own the university. And that's such an important topic that I think in the book here, Rocky and Karen included in the appendix. There's an appendix that has a little short biography of everybody who served as a trustee during mm. that period, most of whom, of course, were men. Mm. <laughs> most, but not all. Um, most, right. most, but not all, were Stanford alums. There's several Cal uh, graduates in there and um, none from USC that I can yes. remember. 
<laughs> but um, we also had people from they, Southern California yes. that were important, like the Chandlers who ran yeah. the L.A. Times. There were three Chandlers over time who were on the board of trustees. Yep. Hmm. So, yeah, it's an interesting group. And I think what could have been a very boring chapter turned out interesting because it did give us the leeway to talk about who some of these people were. Why would they be committed uh, to Stanford? Variety of reasons. Some of which were, there were some uh, that had political interests that sometimes got in the way. Um, but uh, there were there were uh, trustees like um, Carolyn Moore Charles, uh, one of the women, one of the first women on the board, who it turns out had a degree in economics, a master's degree in economics from Stanford. She was on the uh, buildings uh, committee, and she she was she was very adept at knowing when she was they were getting snowballed by an architect or whatever. She she was a very very smart lady, and really presented how women had a role on uh, on the Stanford Board of Trustees. The other thing was she was an advocate for students. She was very interested in students and student housing, um, and students, you know, had no voice on the board. So, I I once had lunch with Mrs. Charles. Oh, in Stern Hall. I didn't. <laughs> as a student or as, as a, a student? Yes. Wow. She, she 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 liked to come to lunch from time to time yeah. mm, to get to get the students' perspectives. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, and there's a uh, a memorial bench that honors <laughs> her that's not very far from Larry's house on campus, so he took me to visit Mrs. Charles bench one day <laughs> i mean that's an opportunity to ask something that that i've been curious about which is w- what it's like to spend so much time thinking about the past thinking about the, the past at a, a place one's close to and the lives of people who who you knew or who were known by people you knew i mean how, how has that changed your relationship to the place and i mean how i mean are you seeing the world then differently now Wow, that's heavy. Um, I think that's why one becomes a historian, um, to bring humanity into buildings and places and decisions that you see and read about. Um, It's all about the people. And often about people who who don't, um, don't, get heard very much aren't seen in the you know skim across the top this is stanford aren't we great um well we are but there are reasons why and it involves lots of different people over time it's all about the people yeah i mean i think coming from the the new service side of it too i mean um i would think karen could speak to you know you, you, you do get to know where a lot of bodies are buried you have a long, you're here a long time, you see it over a long period of time. But then I think it's sad that that so many people seem to not care. It's, I mean, do younger people tend to think that history started with them, that there was nothing before, but that they've gotten it all right or whatever? It's just, it's good because they're here and they don't know and sometimes don't appreciate what uh, all the sacrifice and all the work that went into creating what they now have. 
Wait, so I mean, I'm this is my third year as a as a resident assistant, and mm-hmm. when I got a hold of the book and started reading it and looking at the photos, I was struck by the this shot of Florence Moore Hall before the the first floor was was put in, and I. I um, actually called over some of the the first year residents um, who are living on my floor, and and showed them the photo, and they were all you know pretty mesmerized by it. So I think that often people need opportunities for these moments of awe, and it's books like this one that give people a chance to to have a a sense of the realness of the past kindled within them. Um, yeah. yeah, that's uh, actually there are. Uh, few more photos we should send over to you you'll be of when fuomo was being built and first advertised the ladies oh yeah well we'll send over to you you'll have fun with them but uh, what it, what you were just saying it i had moments of awe myself when i i was trying to research or describe a certain trend or a, something that was happening for example that comes to mind was that people think Student activism started in the, the I don't know, say the, the later 1960s with David Harris, and it simply is not true. And as I was trying to kind of figure out how do you tell the story of when, when does political activism, students and faculty, come about, part of it is the change in the student body, but part of it, again, are these interesting roles that unsung heroes take and I was, I was really struck by, there were several daily editors who really, really um, spoke out when n- none of their classmates were. Um, Nancy Steffens being one of them. Irene Strelitz is another one who's, who's talked about in the book. Uh, and there were, there were a number of, of ASSU leaders. Um, the Associated Students of Stanford. Oh, yeah. sorry. Um, who I'd never even known about. And when I came upon Armin Rosencrantz, uh, who was a, an extraordinary guy, he's still alive, uh, went on to serve on the board of trustees, actually. Um, he was, we think, the first graduate student to be elected president. Um, and his, his little political saying was, um, elect a man to do a boy's job. <laughs> and he had an extraordinary sense of humor. He had a very different relationship with the president of the university that a younger student probably couldn't have had. He also had a certain amount of chutzpah. And um, and he he rocked the boat. Mm. And that's, uh, that's, yeah, that was one of those oh wow moments. So, I, re- I recall that uh, the his nickname him was Charmin Armin. Yes, mm. <laughs> yes, Charmin Armin, and there's a picture of Charmin Armin. So, uh, but that, that, thank you for that observation. What's your sense of of how much of uh, institutional change at Stanford has been driven by choices of people, and how much of it has just been driven by these big historical forces, like the fact that you know. The, the university is existing here in Silicon Valley in the aftermath of the Second World War, and and there's all this Cold War research funding. I mean, how 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 much of the um, the fortune of the institution is is yeah? Can we attribute to historical forces, and and how much credit is due to these hardworking people who who were at, at the helm? 
Wow. Um, I don't think there's any way to quantify that. Um, huh. Because for every individual, there are external forces. Um, it, and vice versa. I mean, even, there could be external forces like the civil rights movement. If no one at your college or university wants to pay attention to the civil rights movement, your university won't do it. Um, Stanford was, it had a changing student body. Um, it was gradually becoming more diverse. It had uh, faculty and students who took an active interest in this case. I, mean, I think that's a good example right there. What if, what if uh, Stanford students hadn't gone to Mississippi? What if Bob Byers had not been um, the, a key staff member there to get the word out to the rest of the country? And can you say more about Stanford's relationship to the civil rights movement? I recall reading that, that there were more Stanford people represented at a certain event than any other university or something like this. Um, that's, that's, probably, that's probably Mississippi summer. Yeah. Okay. It's 1964 summer in Mississippi. To uh, register voters. Um, and Bob took a leave of absence. He was the director of the news service uh, where I later worked. <clears throat> um, but I wasn't there in 1964. And he took a leave of absence to go take part and be the, the PR person, the news um, intermediary. Um, and, and I think the uh, deaths of the, um, yeah, the, the, th the murders of the three civil rights workers happened, was it a week before he got there? Something like that. And there were several... So I was dealing with that. Yeah. Um, Irene Strelitz, who was an editor of The Daily, uh, had already been very active in trying to organize students to go and to be just more socially aware of what was happening. Um, and she went down to Mississippi summer, and there, were, they, there was, a, 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 I guess you'd say, a mobilization of Stanford students. Um, and there were several Stanford students who got the tar beaten out of them, and that it became um, national news. Uh, Frank Morris. Frank Morris being one of them. And, um, and it rather scared David Harris. He was down there briefly and then came home. It was it was tough. Um, it was a, a, a huge eye-opening moment. Um, Can we talk about that visit of Martin Luther King Jr. to campus and Memorial Auditorium? Well, there, there were, two. were two. Oh, there were two. <laughs> he first came in 1964, and then he was here just, a, um, let's see, in 67, in April, I think it was, of 67, so just a year before he was assassinated. And uh, Phil Topman, who was daily editor at the time, if I remember right, was one of the people who uh, went up to the airport to fetch him. And so he, he rode with Martin Luther King. Yeah, he has a wonderful story about, about that. Um, that, uh, again, another oh wow moment was, um, was discovering how useful the Stanford Daily Archives were and how certain people would just keep reappearing, like Phil Taubman, who was a reporter initially and um, had extraordinarily articulate articles after King's assassination, for example. 
he went around the campus to various campus residences and then wrote about that experience, about how in this particular residence, um, people were crying. And then he'd go over there and they'd say, who cares? Uh, you know, do you have football tickets or, you know, are you thinking about the basketball game or whatever? So it, it, he, the articles he wrote and he and, and other very articulate um, reporters were just wonderful resources. And I don't think they've been utilized as much as they could be. And so it was, it was nice to be able to feature those. So. And, By the way, I was wrong. Phil couldn't have been editor in no, 67. Yeah, he was a reporter. Yeah. Because he, he was, was editor being... next year, the following year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or around 70. Oh, was 69. Oh, okay. 70. I don't well, anyway. Oh, I don't remember. He's in there. He's yeah. in there. But in, And now the daily archives are searchable online. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. How um, long has that been available? It oh. happened halfway through our production on this book. and um, So it, it, it. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it, it was great. It really yeah. helped me. I rewrote. The, the student um, activism chapters, the two chapters on students, was originally one chapter. And, um, and it just didn't make me happy. And it's because of the daily archives, being able to really go in and, um, and hear what the students had to say. Same thing with the athletics chapter. You want it, that's the thing. I wanted the students to have a say. So... Thank you to the daily. <laughs> Can you say more about the the research process and 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 the archives? You were university archivist. You yes. you you also worked um, as as the director of the Stanford Oral History Project. Well, right? I, yeah, I, I co-founded it with Fred Glover actually, and we um, worked on it through the '80s and '90s. And then as I went into my own, uh, I, I I left the archives and. Fred passed away, and we passed it on, um, so it was kind of revitalized. Um, and so what it is today is a lot of credit goes to Natalie Marine Street, who now directs it, but Susan Schofield and others who are in charge of the his Historical Society's uh, committee, so to speak. Um, so it was, it's, it's really gone along. But... Fred, Fred was somebody who knew we, we were covering an older generation, um, and I'm, gosh, thank goodness we did. He, he knew many of these people personally, so we could lean on them. We could lean on them to say, of course you would like to talk to us about mm -hmm. these things. Sometimes because Fred knew them so well, they'd be too discreet between the two of them, you know, so you'd have to, there were times when you'd have to try to needle people into, well, you know, Tell us the real, real story behind it. And there were still, there were still bodies that, that, that uh, as I say, bodies buried sometimes just stay buried. And Fred Glover was the master of discretion. Um, he had been Wally Sterling's assistant for so long, it was just second nature. And even when we did, several of us did an, uh, an oral history with Fred that went on, was very one of our longest ones, um, we couldn't get him to talk about everything. Mm. Um, interesting, interesting. We haven't touched on athletics, and of course, that's an, an important part of the of the of the institution, historically and now. What was athletics like when Sterling was here, and what were some of the the the, the achievements of the era, and you know, in, in Stanford's athletics programs? 
you know, for some people who uh, on the, um, especially on the Alumni Association board and even among the trustees, the fact that Wally Sterling had been a collegiate athlete and a collegiate professional coach was key to their their wholehearted, full-throated support of Wally Sterling. And they they really hoped he was going to revitalize the football program. Um, and in fact, at his first um, press conference, it was it was very unusual for a, a, a new president of a university, you know, some egghead at some ivory tower thing to have a press conference. But he did because he was familiar with, with the broadcasting. He'd been a broadcast journalist. So he was, there were two lines of questioning at this press conference. Everything else kind of died away. One was about communism, because this is, after all, 1949. Were there any communists at Stanford? And the second was, what are you going to do about the football program? That's what the general public wanted to know. So that gives you an idea. Stanford's football program was not doing well at the time. Um, And he would go through, uh, he took a personal interest in men's athletics. Um, I can vouch for the fact that women's athletics, even up up to just about Title IX took really took hold in the early 70s. So we're always talking men's athletics at this era. Um, but he he uh, he found his his favorite coach in Chuck Taylor, and they brought you know Stanford to the Rose Bowl eventually. Um, but I know what you're getting at. You're getting at the Pacific Coast Conference. <laughs> <laughs> and athletics was, a, it was part of the Stanford identity, Stanford student life. Um, even if you weren't an athlete your, yourself, there was access to a wide array. You didn't have to be a, a, um, a Heisman-style football player back in those days. People played the equivalent of, of sports, of um, club sports, across a whole array of sports. And often when you're talking to alumni from the 50s and 60s, they will tell you, they went off to become some famous lawyer or something, but they'll say, you know, I played soccer for three years, or I played water polo for three years, because it was a, it was a part of student life. It was very accessible. Mm. Um, and so... The traditions of intercollegiate sports for among the what was then called the Pacific Coast Conference, that was a that was all part of it. It meant something if you if you beat USC in anything. It meant something if you beat Cal. It meant something when um, Washington came down. These this was an important part of life, and so in in the 1950s in the post-war era you have a whole new uh set of circumstances we were talking about what happens when national events and you begin to see universities across the country um it was it was the era of of all athletes were supposed to be students first you didn't give them under the table payments unless you were a strong booster group from seattle or the, the what would they called the young men of Westwood who would make sure to funnel funds into uh, the football program so they could get better better players um, 
but it was happening in the East Coast. It was happening in basketball as much as football. Money, money and sports is starting to become a big deal. UCLA basically funded its first phenomenal expansion with football money um, in the 1950s and, and, and 60s. Um, so you begin to see, and the, and the NCAA is kind of trying to kind of come to a grip with it. Nobody had regulations as strict as a Pacific Coast Conference. So it was bound to happen. There were going to be issues and scandals where some of the universities, usual villains, um, will get in trouble and get their hands slapped. And things kind of go along then, and then something else happens. Um, and in 19, in the later 1950s, um, UCLA and USC, among others, um, uh, get caught for an infringement that becomes um, a serious debate among the the presidents and the the faculty reps for the the PCC, to a point where basically um, UCLA and USC bring it down. And Sterling was took the high road, and um, it at one point became Stanford versus the South, and it was really interesting to see how the Daily supported Wally Sterling in this, because the student body is beginning to change too. There were those who said. Do we care? You know, do we care what happens with football? We're the smart people. We're the elite people. Um, maybe we should be in the Ivy League. Um, so it, it's interesting to see that debate going on among students. Should we care about athletics? I don't know. So um, in the end, the, the Pacific Coast Conference um, was destroyed. It reformulated, ironically, with uh, a new conference that had nearly the same um, group of people. Um, today, when you see the Pac-12 say, we're, we're 100 years old, well, it's not really true. But, um, but there is this tradition, 100-year tradition of these, fund- fundamentally the, the first eight, having such a close relationship. And as of next year, that's toast. Nobody cares. You know, one, one thing that's important to note, I think, about how the, the change in the athletic programs. I recall in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, we didn't have, freshmen didn't play varsity football. Right. They had a freshman football team. Yeah. Uh, they played freshman football. And we didn't, at Stanford, we did not allow um, uh, freshman students to arrive until they came as students. So they didn't come early. There's no early football practice. They first came to become students and live with their freshman dorms. And after that, then they entered into the student. But that's a, a far cry from what we have today. As we, as we come to the end of the, of the program, I, I won't, I'm hoping that we can go around and <laughs> I'd like to hear from each of you about how the university has changed during your time here, pulling the story toward the present. And um, if you're if you're willing to entertain the question, I'd like to hear what the I don't know what the university means to you. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm 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 the odd person out because I have two universities to which I'm loyal. Um, 
I Stanford obviously means a lot. I wouldn't have put most of my academic life and and life as a as a researcher and a, a writer into this university if I didn't feel proud of it. Um, I don't recognize whole whole large parts of it anymore. Um, we've been around for fifty years, so I. That's just the way things are. I think it's it's more corporate than I remembered. Um, but I'm because I'm now not living. I'm, I don't live on campus. Um, I I'm of the retired age, so my connections are a little bit different. Um, yeah, I I think my attachment used to be more emotional, and now it does feel very large and very corporate. I so admired um, Wally and enjoyed the parts of this book where we really point out how, how thin the administration was. Everybody, uh, I mean, it's just a smaller place. Um, and, and I realize I'm just getting old. So that's, <laughs> that's the way it is. People get old and they always lament that things aren't the same. That's true. I mean, you will see this. You'll see this in the book where, from from Wally's first year on, alumni are complaining about it's just getting too fast. It's getting too busy. It's um, there. It, it's 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 this combination of being very very proud, but being a little um disheartened by what they see as a a a growing lack of connection and some of it today is uh in wally's day the alumni uh had a very strong voice the students in the early years the students not so much by the end of his his uh administration students had a lot to say the alumni were frustrated because because they didn't think they had very much um now I'm not sure how much either has, um, and so it's. I I I look back at like like Karen that we look at the people that we knew, and those interactions, and as long as you have the people, then that's where where the heart is. Lots of well, happy I've, memories. I've seen a lot of changes at Stanford. After all, I came here in 1960, and I was here as a student. I worked in several different jobs. Uh, one with the student housing system, which which went when I was in charge, it went from uh, uh, essentially almost all single sex to all co-ed housing, um, and then I worked uh, in in the uh, near the president's office on external relations, dealing with the city of Palo Alto and the federal government. Uh, but I've I've lived at Stanford for thirty years now. I still live here, and I still find it a remarkable place. I've never expected a place like Stanford to change, I mean, to stay the same. Gerhard Casper used to say that every day of a university is a new day for challenges, and it's always going to change. So I, I can't say that I agree with everything at all times and never have, but the basic uh, fabric of Stanford, I think, is strong, strong now, as strong as it ever has been, has great promise. And I think that uh, it will deal, as we have to deal, with the issues of our time. And I'm confident we'll do it well. 
Well, thank you to the three of you for coming on to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having us. That was my interview with Roxanne Nylon, Karen Bartholomew, and Larry Horton. You're listening to Office Hours Air on KZSU 90.1 FM. Thanks for listening.